นโมทัสสะบุวะทัวระหะทัวสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมทัสสะบุวะทัวระหะทัวสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมทัสสะบุวะทัวระหะทัวสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะพุทธังธรรมังสังฆังนมัสสะในเรื่องที่ผมได้พูดกับคนที่ผมได้พูดคุยกับคนที่ผมได้พูดคุยกับคนที่ผมได้พูดคุยกับคนที่ผมได้พูดคุยกับคนที่ผมได้พูดคุยกับคนที่ผมได้พูดคุยกับคนที่ผมได้พูดคุยกับคนที่ผมได้พูดคุยกับคนที่ผมได้พูดคุยกับคนที่ผมได้พูดคุยกับคนที่ผมได้พูดคุยกับคนที่ผมได้พูดคุยกับคนที่ And I commented that happiness is not the goal of practice, as far as I'm concerned, and it's not a sensible approach. And it's understandable, of course, we all like happiness. But if we hold up happiness as the goal in practice, then well, there's a lot in life that occurs to us that we're going to be seeing ourselves or life as a failure, like. What happens if a close friend dies, and I'm not going to be happy about that? And there's unhappiness. Does that mean that we're failing, life is failing, or they failed us? And so the pursuit of happiness it seems it's good if we check that out. Is that what we're aiming for? And and then if happiness is not the goal, then What is the goal? And, well, we're fortunate to have come across these teachings where the Buddha holds up wisdom as the goal, and that wisdom is that which sees according to actuality, sees things as they actually are, and then can behave in, in a skillful way. When we don't see how things actually are, we see things according to our preferences, according to our likes and dislikes. Then we can get a very confused perspective on things. So this is something we can always spend time considering, and I'd like to spend some time this evening contemplating together that what is a practice that is oriented towards wisdom. How do we practice if wisdom is the goal? And so you don't have to study much Buddhism before we come across the Four Noble Truths, where the Buddha talks about this getting interested in the reality, the actuality of suffering. That suffering, its cause, suffering and its cause—that's what needs to be looked at. In his teachings, the Buddha said, "Is through not seeing two things that we struggle. We not seeing suffering, not seeing the cause of suffering. And elsewhere, I, I teach two things. I, I teach suffering. I teach the cessation of suffering. So we can take from that that the Buddha's wisdom, or the wisdom the Buddha was pointing to, has got a lot to do with 
our investigation of this aspect of experience we call suffering, frustration, disappointment, sorrow. How do we deal with it? And so instead of pursuing happiness, which is very tempting, mm. we need to find a way of encouraging, directing our attention, and generating interest in the reality of those things that challenge us. And this is what leads to wisdom, according to the Buddha's teachings. And, and the expression of wisdom, if you've ever had the good fortune of meeting truly wise people, you see there's this unobstructed involvement with everything, with experience. <coughs> this wholehearted participation in life is the, that's the experience you can expect in their company. And somebody who's wholeheartedly participating in life, as we were reading, we were having this morning of Ajahn Chah's teachings, is somebody who's practicing rightly, somebody who's practicing properly, is not running away from life, not running away from sight, sound, smells, taste, touches, and mental impressions, not averse to these things, but interested in how they affect us, how we're affected by life. Do we meet it whereby we cling, we get lost in liking and disliking, or do we use our experiences to generate a new perspective, a new view, a new way of understanding? So owning up to our struggles, the experience of obstructedness, the experience of half-heartedness, where we're not really meeting life, where we're not really participating, where we feel limited, that's the characteristic of this path of practice if we're interested in arriving at real wisdom. And again, as I was saying, that's challenging and it's against a lot of our conditioning but we need to somehow encourage ourselves in this direction mm-hmm. and we all have I'm sure plenty of opportunities uh, to do this and all of us I'm sure know the experience of feeling unwilling to really receive life's challenges uh, to really receive suffering now, it's not easy to you know, say, I've got to learn to welcome suffering. Certainly we can't like suffering. But even to sometime, even sometimes to expect ourselves to welcome suffering can be very challenging if it's serious suffering. But what we can do is pay attention to how much we resist it in the body, the whole body-mind, registering with body-mind awareness feeling the resistance, feeling the rejection of suffering. And in so doing, undoing that reaction and diminishing that reaction and letting go of that reaction of resistance and rejection and thereby cultivating a willingness to receive. So a barometer in 
progress on this path towards wisdom would be the increased willingness to suffer. Now, of course, on one level that sounds really peculiar, but we're not just talking about the way things appear to be, we're not just talking about our everyday reaction to life, we're talking about a considered inquiry, we're talking about the level of considered inquiry, really trying to see beyond the way things appear to be, making the effort to see beyond our condition, liking, disliking, so what really is the cause? What, why, where's the clinging? What is it that I'm doing that is turning life into a struggle? Getting interested in that. And undoing that unwillingness. I was, I was inspired recently in a conversation with somebody else where they pointed out, they mentioned how they really had an appreciation for having difficult people around. And I was confident this this person wasn't just saying because they wanted me to hear them say that. It was this was their experience. They they had a way of appreciating that kind of a challenge. You know, not always getting the nice company, not always getting what we want when we want has a benefit from the perspective of somebody really pursuing wisdom. Pursuing happiness, well, if that's the goal, well then, of course we don't like having difficult people around. They're just a nuisance. We'd rather not have to put up with them. But if we get the message, if we get this teaching that the Buddha has given us, then there's a way of using frustrating circumstances, including difficult people, to our advantage, to our benefit. It brings into relief, it highlights, it shows up where we're caught up in getting my way, getting what I want all the time. It's similar to, I remember the early days of Wat Nana Chat in Thailand. I heard it reported how Ajahn Sumato had gone over to spend time with Ajahn Chah, he wasn't far away, Wat Bapong, where Ajahn Chah was living, is quite nearby, it was, it was walking distance in fact, and Ajahn Sumedha was over there, and Ajahn Chah asked him, this is like in the very, very beginning of Wat, Wat Nana Chat, and Ajahn Chah asked him, how's, how's it going, how, how are all the Western monks living together, how's it working out? And Ajahn Sumedha told him, it's marvellous, it's just, everybody's so cooperative, everybody's getting on together, Everybody's contributing and along such lines. And Ajahn charges, oh, that's not going to do you any good. That's not going to help at all. That's not going to lead to wisdom. Now, from a worldly condition perspective, that's really odd. But from a practice perspective, that's, yeah, that's it. We need to work on our view of suffering so we stop seeing it as unfortunate and use it to inspire us to get more interested in where's the real cause? The real cause of the struggle. 
Likewise with our inability to sometimes take responsibility when we have caused suffering to others. Not just our own suffering that we cause ourselves that we need to look into, but also when we cause suffering to others. Do we go into blaming and criticizing? Or are we able to say sorry? How long... How long does it take us to say sorry when we've snapped at somebody because we were impatient or feeling stressed out and not particularly tolerant and so we just say something heedless and hurtful and maybe afterwards we say, oh I didn't really mean it. Well, mm, probably you did really at the time. That's why we did it. That's why we said it. And so long as we're unawakened, we're going to continually make mistakes. And uh, So right practice is about not projecting, not blaming, not justifying, but being quicker. If we're looking for a barometer in practice, are we getting quicker and more able to say sorry, to apologize when we do something? Even if we think... We weren't doing it intentionally. It's still helpful to apologize. And are we willing and able to do that? It's similar with being willing and able to ask for help when we need it. Now, I don't mean going to ask for help at the first hurdle. I mean, you know, we learn by making efforts when we feel challenged. But when we reach the point of it's becoming obvious that I need help here. Are we willing and able to ask for help? Or are we too proud? Are we too attached still to me and my way to be able to let on that we feel we need help? So in terms of dealing with the obstructions, in terms of dealing with recognizing our half-heartedness and our inability to really participate in life, with interest and enthusiasm, these are some of the things that we would be wise to look at. It's tempting to be drawn and towards the positive. And of course there are times where we need to be working on the positive and buoying ourselves up and cultivating strength and a sense of confidence and gladness and a recognition of our own goodness. But that's like having a meal. That's to allay the feelings of hunger, give us strength. The work is something else. We don't spend all day eating. We don't spend all day cooking, unless you're a chef and cook. Most of us, we eat food to feel nourished so we can get on with life. And life, or work, for us, is how to skillfully encourage the willingness to recognize the obstructions and look into the real causes and not just speculate intellectually, mentally. Sometimes our mental speculations are actually obstructions in themselves. Like Another example of something we would be wise to look at is 
how do we respond when there's somebody in need of our attention, somebody who's suffering, and what they really need is for us to just be there and receive them and listen to them. Can we do that? Can we just be present and listen? Or is it the case that there's this endless verbiage in our heads going on and on and on, maybe critiquing what this person is sharing with us, maybe preparing our clever response, or maybe worrying because we don't have a response? Are we so caught up in this particular form of obstructedness, compulsive thinking, that we can't even be there, really, can't really be there. Now, if we find that's the case, if we just recognize it's the case, then what is right practice? We go against that. Leave our mental proliferations behind and bring awareness into the body. Feel ourselves here in this moment in relationship to this person recognizing the other even bringing our attention literally to our ears and suggesting that we just listen simply listen training in this way going against the habits that feed the obstructions create and strengthen our sense of feeling limited as you would expect in the monastery here we often have people come to visit who are interested in taking up monastic training and whether somebody is really suitable or not is a big question because You don't want to encourage somebody who really isn't suitable and you don't want to discourage somebody who really is suitable. So how might we discern somebody's suitability? Well, one of the things that, uh, if I think about this, one of the things that comes to my mind is, is the degree to which somebody is still caught up in me and my way, in that particular aspect of obstructiveness that particular obstruction that commitment my views, my opinions my preferences and so it's not a strategy that I've adopted but when I think about it it is something that I'm liable to notice how much are they caught up in self-promoting self-referencing self-degrading, self-disparaging. How able are they to laugh at themselves, at least to consider their conditioned personality as something that's really quite inadequate? Are they so caught up in their conditioned sense of self and self-promoting that they can't laugh at themselves? Now, as I was already mentioning, the, the ability to acknowledge and uh, apologize for limitations, the ability to acknowledge the limitations and ask for help when necessary. All of these are signs that would 
or could indicate how seriously somebody takes themselves. For somebody who really takes themselves too seriously, it's like they've got a lot of baggage, too much baggage. And if somebody has too much baggage, then there's a risk that they're not going to be able to let go. It's too frightening. There's a lot of this training is very specifically and sometimes quite intensely focusing on encouraging learning how to let go of me and my way and if we've got too much baggage then that's going to be an obstruction it's going to be a hindrance maybe you've heard some of those stories from Zen monasteries in Japan at least in the olden times and I don't know if it's it's actually true that these things happen but at least the way the story goes is an applicant wants to join the monastery and and knocks on the gate and and once the gate is opened and and he talks about his wanting to join the community, the gate has closed his face and he's left outside. And, and not only is he left outside, but he's left outside for days. The applicant is just left there sitting on the steps and maybe from time to time somebody opens the door and curses them and maybe throws some, some kitchen slops out on them and just leaves them there and, and if they're still there after seven days well they might be allowed in well again as I said I don't know if that ever actually happened or happens but it illustrates the principle that if somebody takes himself too seriously is too proud too pleased with himself then they wouldn't obviously stick around but if they're able to let go of some of their baggage if they understand the principle involved in letting go, then there's a chance that they'll benefit from the training. So I'm sure all of us recognize uh, already that we have this task of getting interested in the momentum of me and my way and doing something about it. We're all interested in the wisdom that's able to see through the con that comes with this conditioned commitment to following me and my way. And what can we do about it? Well, spiritual companionship is really important. Really, really important. The Buddha talked about it in a way where it's not just a, a kind of interesting extra option. He said it's essential. Spiritual companionship is essential. Spiritual companionship are those kind of people that have the ability and willingness to listen to us, to really listen to us. Not just tell us how we should be, but really listen to us. They also have the ability to say what we need to hear if we're going off the rails, getting too pleased with ourselves or too sorry about ourselves. are willing and able to give us a straight reflection, not just say nice things because we like to hear them. Mm. So spiritual companionship is precious and nourishing, truly beneficial on this journey. And then of course, as, as uh, we would have, most of us would have heard many times before, the encouragement to develop the spiritual faculties 
We can't just assume that our faculties are good enough. We might be able to get around and read a book and have a conversation, but are our faculties sufficiently finely tuned to be able to really read the nuances of the activity of heart and mind and body to make a difference? Just regurgitating things that we've read in a book, that's not real contemplation. It may help us get started. We can be grateful for the books that are around. But we need to go beyond repeating things we've read and start to look deeper, to feel deeper, to feel beyond the surface level, the apparent reality and what's really going on there. What is the real cause of these obstructions? What is the... What is it that conditions this momentum of this commitment to me and my way? What is clinging actually? It's not just the word clinging. That's just a noise. That's a sound symbol for a reality. What is the reality? Can we feel it in our body, clinging? And to recognize that that makes a difference. Really seeing where we're doing the attachment, the clinging, and then how that can lead to letting go, and then to realize, appreciate the benefit of having let go. Hmm. So this is something we can apply in all aspects of our life, inwardly in our solitude, in our private practice, and also in our engagement with the world. Hmm. A lot of the conflicts that happen in the world because there isn't the wisdom to understand, there isn't the ability to investigate in a skillful way that leads to understanding. Like this conversation that's been around for a while now, or this conversation is a polite word for it, the, the argument more likely between those who demand their right to have a safe space to never be offended. And they demand it, some of them. They really get very uh, objectionable when they don't have the safe space that they feel they're entitled to. But then there's those who also demand their right to say whatever they like, call it free speech, and they justify it in terms of pursuing truth. And both of those positions, the right to a safe space, the right to say what you want in pursuit of clarity. There's an argument that can be made for that, but why does it end up in conflict? Well, it's because of clinging. As soon as there's clinging to the view of my right, then we go off the rails. As soon as there's clinging to any view, it becomes a fixed position. And then we end up in conflict. So both of those views, both of those perspectives can be up for consideration. But if we're busy clinging to them, then we're not going to be able to consider them. Not really. We don't have the space. We don't have the sensitivity. We don't have the subtlety of attention to be able to investigate.
So recognizing the encouragement the Buddha gave of getting interested in the reality of obstructions, not just hearing it as a theory, but it's only when we have the inclination to look in the right way at the right time in the right direction that there's any chance that we're going to be able to live life more wholeheartedly and free from obstructions. And thank you very much this evening for your attention. <coughs> Mayang dhamma vada jata sadhkaranda dhamma se